First and foremost, the reason that we're all here is um, Ben and Donna and Sam and Daniel and Andy and all the more girls and women. We're so sorry. We're so sorry. From a human standpoint, this is not fair. From our perspective, little bitty tiny perspective, it's not fair. And we get that, and we are all here for them. So, first, let me express my sorrow on your behalf at your loss. It's very interesting, though. Over the past two plus years, as Nancy was battling uh, this disease, any time we talked, which was often, she really was quite amazing because she amazed me with what I would consider the most matter of fact attitude about the fact that heaven awaits her that I've ever really seen. It, it was just almost routine. Her heavenly future was so certain that there was a sense of normalcy. It was as if she was saying, I'm going to go to Target, then I'm going to church, and then I'm going to heaven. It really was just what's going to happen next. She didn't speak of heaven in mysterious general terms. She spoke of heaven as if she were already familiar with it, and I think that was the Lord's gift to begin to prepare her heart. There was no sense of fear whatsoever in her mind. And, of course, this was due to her saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and having learned so very well what the Word of God, what the Bible says about Jesus Christ and about heaven. It's very interesting that the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 14, he said, For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. This is something actually quite amazing. Paul is basically saying that our last act of service to the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth is our own death. To die the death of a faithful servant to the end. And by her death, Nancy died to the Lord. But more than that, she has drawn a line in the sand. She really has issued a challenge. And I'm going to tell you what that line in the sand is in a few minutes. Nancy expressed her wishes that I speak not much about her, but rather about two topics. She wanted me to speak about Jesus Christ and about heaven. And so to honor her wishes, I'd like to give you two facts about Jesus and about heaven. The first one is, is that Jesus is the only authority on heaven, and the second is that Jesus is the only gatekeeper of heaven. He's the only authority, and he's the only gatekeeper. Those are our two facts. It's very interesting that Jesus had quite an amazing conversation with Israel's lead Bible teacher, a guy by the name of Nicodemus, as recorded in John chapter 3. And he told Nicodemus that you must be born again. Now, Nicodemus didn't understand what he was talking about. And so Jesus asserted his authority to make this statement. And he asserted his authority about heaven. He said in John chapter 3, verse 13, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That is Jesus. Now, what did he mean by this? Well, very simply this. The religions of the world claim to give mankind information about heaven and about how they get there. Roman Catholicism, Islam, Mormonism, and so forth. But what they all have in common is that everyone giving information about heaven, among all of them, no one has actually been there. That's ironic to me. But Jesus has. He came from there. He's there now. So there's one singular source of information about heaven, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We have a Bible, which Romans 10, verse 17 calls the Word of Christ. And therefore, by finding out what the Bible says about heaven, we're accessing what Jesus says about heaven as the only true authority. Now, I've spoken in our church and I've spoken in other memorial services on heaven before. I never get tired of it, and you shouldn't either. This is a wonderful topic. And from the Word of Christ, just to kind of boil this down, I want to show you six parts of heaven to look forward to. Six parts of heaven to look forward to. The Bible speaks of a coming new heaven. That's another topic for another day. So what I'm talking about is what the Bible says about heaven as it is right now at this moment in July of 2018. As it is at this moment. Six parts of heaven. Here's the first part. We might call it immediate comfort. Immediate comfort. The transition from earth to heaven is instant. Second Corinthians 5 verse 8 says that we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. There's no waiting period. There's no long tunnel. There's no taken number. There's no bus stop to wait for the next transport to heaven. Heaven as it is right now is the place that God will wipe away every tear from your eyes, as Romans, as Revelation 7 says. This means that the very moment that you enter into the presence of the Lord, there's no more concern, no more sadness, no more regret, no more pain. And as part of this immediate comfort, heaven has the feel of home. It has the feel of home. Hebrews 11, verse 14 through 16, uses words like homeland and land and country and city to describe heaven. These are very familiar terms to us. And so everything you love and adore about the concept of home, everything that makes home home, that would be your immediate experience in heaven. Here's another part of heaven to look forward to. Physical surroundings. Physical surroundings. I I think our culture has mistakenly pictured heaven for us as some sort of ethereal, floating, cloudy place. That's not what the Bible says. What What can you expect in the physical surroundings? Well, first, you could expect lush vegetation. Jesus gave a perfect one-word description of heaven to the thief on the cross when he said, Today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is a word that means a beautiful, green, flowering, blossoming garden. And as part of the vegetation, you can expect trees. Revelation 7, verse 9, describes heaven as it is now with people from every nation on earth, quote, with palm branches in their hand. Now, it's very easy just to say, well, that's symbolic. I don't think so. In the same verse, there's a real throne, a real group of people, and a real Jesus Christ. Why do the palm branches suddenly become symbols? And where do you get palm branches? I've only found one place. You get them from palm trees. Trees growing in heaven. And certainly the Lord of creation won't limit himself to palm trees. Undoubtedly, there will be oak and maple and sequoia and pine and apple and orange. Who knows? As part of the physical surroundings, you'll also have a sky. A sky. Ezekiel one twenty two describes heaven as having, quote, the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal. It's spread out over the, the heads of great and mighty angels. Listen, the earth has a pretty glorious sky. Why should heaven do anything less? I mean, our sky now is awe-inspiring, but the sky of heaven will make the sky of earth look like a dull blue crayon. That's it. And how about this? How about animals? 
How about animals? 2 Kings 2 verse 11 tells the story of heaven sending chariots and horses of fire to accompany the prophet Elijah to heaven. There's no reason to take that figuratively. Some of the main angels in heaven called living creatures in the books of Ezekiel and Revelation. They're depicted as lions, as eagles, as oxen. Every single stage of God's redemptive plan has included the animal kingdom. Pre-flood, animals. After the flood, animals. The coming kingdom, Isaiah chapter 11, speaks of animals. And God certainly cared enough for his creation of animals to include them on Noah's Ark. After all, they weren't the ones who rebelled against God. That was mankind. And so you could expect to see the most glorious array of God's creation of animals ever assembled. There's a third part of heaven to look forward to. We might call this physical enjoyment. Physical enjoyment. You can look forward to a real physical body. Now, we know that the resurrection of the saints happens later on in redemptive history. But this doesn't mean that the saints arriving in heaven right now are without a body of some sort. There's actually very strong evidence for this in Scripture. The unresurrected martyrs of the book of Revelation chapter 6 are depicted as having physical bodies. We're even given the description of what clothes they're wearing. The unresurrected Moses and Elijah appeared in physical form with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. And the unresurrected Abraham in Luke 16 is depicted with a physical body. I don't know what that's going to be like, but we can look forward to it. Along with physical enjoyment, we would say food. Now, obviously, food won't be necessary to sustain life, but who can imagine heaven without food? We can't even imagine earth without food. And one of God's chief angels assures us in Revelation 19, verse 9, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Not the marriage punch social. It's a supper. Now, what kind of supper would it be without food? How about wine? And of course, what would the celebration meal be like without the best of the best wine? No more drunkenness, no more sin associated with alcohol. Jesus promised in Matthew 26, verse 29, that he would not drink, quote, of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And how about this for physical enjoyment? Clothes. Good news, ladies. The wardrobe of heaven is magnificent. The saints of Revelation 7, verse 9, are depicted in what seems to be the primary color of heaven, and that is brilliant white. But this is a scene of an official, formal, corporate worship service, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll always wear white forever. God is the one who clothed the lilies of the field. Matthew 6, verse 28, and lilies come in about 3,000 varieties at last check. So I imagine that the glorious wardrobe of heaven will not disappoint you. It is to God's glory to adorn his bride. And speaking of adorn, how about color? Any discussion of clothing should remind us of color. Revelation 4, verse 3 says, and this is just the throne of God. The throne of God alone has a rainbow of color around it, a rainbow, quote, that had the appearance of an emerald. How is it a rainbow and an emerald? I have no idea, but we'll find out. The, the gorgeous colors of red and orange and yellow and green and blue and indigo and violet are the colors that are visible to us right now at this moment. But even our limited knowledge of science has taught us that there are colors that are not visible, such as infrared light beyond red and ultraviolet light, 
beyond violet, and certainly heaven will reveal the, the full rainbow of God, perhaps with countless millions of colors. Who knows? But we instinctively know the, the emotional and, and joy-filling benefits of color. And heaven will be the most colorful place you've ever seen. There's a fourth part of heaven for us to look forward to, and that is spiritual delight. Spiritual delight. The first part of that we would just call the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints in Revelation 5 verse 8 says that the throne room of God, in the throne room are, quote, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The prayers of every believer from every age, including yours, are held in honor and esteem in the throne room of God to be answered each and every one in exactly the right time. Also, as part of your spiritual delight, you'll receive your reward. Your reward, often in the New Testament, the reward of believers in Christ is pictured as a crown. Revelation 4 shows the saints casting their crowns before the Lord in gratitude, giving it back to him, so to speak. In Matthew 19, beginning in verse 28, Jesus is speaking of his own glorious throne in the age that is to come. And that in this time, he says, believers will receive houses, lands, and an eternal family with whom we get to enjoy eternal life. We have the prayers of the saints. We have your reward. To add to our spiritual delight would be music. Music, certainly music will be what you're immediately greeted with in heaven. In the major passages on heaven, song is always a central feature every time. Revelation 5, verse 8, speaks of a choir made up of every believer in history singing a a glorious anthem to Christ himself. Now, we know about the harps of heaven in the same verse, but how about the trumpets of heaven? How about the lutes, which is any instrument in the guitar family? How about the tambourines? How about the strings and the pipes? This is flutes and wind instruments. How about the cymbals of heaven? All the instruments of heaven form actually a full orchestra. Did you know that? Now, how do we know this? Because these are the instruments listed in Psalm 150 that will be heard when we, quote, praise God in his sanctuary in his mighty heavens. We already know they're there. And as part of our spiritual delight, how about dancing? What is music without dancing? Everybody who knows me knows I'm very conservative, and this is bothering them to hear this come out of my mouth. (laughs) But I can't deny what Scripture says. Psalm 150, verse 4 says that when we praise him in his mighty heavens, we will praise him with tambourine and dance. This is a very specific word, which means to dance in a circle with people. It's a dance of joy. It's a token of delight. Jesus told the parable of the lost son and the forgiving father in Luke 15. And when the son was arriving home, there was music and dancing for his arrival. Spiritual delights. What else can we look forward to in heaven? How about worship structures? Worship structures. We'll look forward to the temple of God. Hebrews 8 verse 5 tells us that the temple of God was built on earth simply as a copy and a shadow of the real temple of God, which is in heaven. Revelation 11 verse 19 depicts God's temple in heaven opening in preparation for the final stages of redemptive history. The temple of God that was built on earth was just a Lego model compared to the real one. 
How about this worship structure, the throne room of God? That's the central feature of heaven, the the holy of holies, the place where God makes his throne. Isaiah 6 and Revelation chapter 4 describes this throne room in terms of precious stones and brilliant light and crystal floors, crystal skies, and the brilliance of the glory of God himself. You have the temple of God. You have the throne room of God. How about the real Ark of the Covenant? If the temple on earth was just a model of the real thing, then the Ark of the Covenant given to Israel to signify and show the presence of God was just a model as well. Revelation eleven nineteen opens the heavenly temple for us. And, and what do we see? The Ark of His Covenant was seen within the temple. And I'm willing to bet it's a whole lot more spectacular than a little box that six guys can carry. How about this structure, the altar of God? The altar of God on earth in the Old Testament was small enough that a few men could carry it. Revelation 6 verse 9 depicts martyrs standing, quote, under the altar, unquote. This means that the heavenly altar of God must be massive in size and scope because we're talking about millions of people just standing under it. Revelation 8, verse 3, depicts an angel standing at this altar, offering the prayers of all the saints to the Lord. But there's no sacrifice on this altar. The sacrifice has been made in Christ, the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. And how about this worship structure, one of my favorites, the tree of life. The tree of life traces the the plan of redemptive history all through the Bible, Jesus himself said in Revelation 2, verse 7, that that right now, at this moment, just like in the Garden of Eden of old, the tree of life is in heaven. How come archaeologists can't find the tree of life? Because God took it. Because he still has purposes for it. This means that his original redemptive plan for mankind is still going, and it's put in the original place of worship. Revelation 22 says that God essentially has transplanted the tree of life and put it right on Main Street in New Jerusalem, and that's where we'll see it. How about this part of heaven to look forward to? Lastly, relational fulfillment. Relational fulfillment. First thing we think about in heaven sometimes is angels. Angels of heaven, they're often among our first mental pictures. Isaiah chapter 6 pictures the seraphim, the burning ones, loudly proclaiming the great holy, holy, holiness of God. Revelation chapter 5 shows us myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of angels worshiping God along with the saints. We'll also experience, as part of that relational joy, a grand reunion. What a grand reunion. In 2 Samuel 12, David comforts himself in the death of his infant son with the knowledge that he would see him someday. Genesis 49, verse 33, tells the story of the death of Jacob, which is described that he was, quote, gathered to his people, the ones that he knows. You'll see every saint from every age. You'll enjoy perfect, joyous communion with them. You're going to meet Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, all the prophets, all the believers from Ephesus and Galatia and Corinth and Colossae and all the believers since the cross. And by the way, Nancy, the countless joys of reunion and relationship, it's going to take an eternity just to get caught up with everybody. But the most important relational fulfillment 
is you will have your first complete meeting with the triune God. You'll have your first manifested meeting with God the Father. This is impossible on earth and in our sinful realm. God said in Exodus 33 verse 20 that no one can see God and live. But in heaven we'll see the unveiled, manifested glory of God. Jesus even promised this in Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You'll see your first manifested meeting with the Holy Spirit. Now, by definition, the Holy Spirit is invisible. But he can take on physical forms, such as the dove at Jesus' baptism and the tongues of fire at Pentecost. And in fact, Revelation 4, verse 5, pictures the Holy Spirit in heaven now as seven torches of fire before the throne of God. And you'll have your first face-to-face meeting with God the Son, with our Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine the joy and bursting happiness that will happen when, as 1 John 3, 2 says, you will see him as he is. So Jesus is the only authority on heaven And he's revealed much in Scripture about heaven. Nancy's there right now. Of course, the question is, how did she get there? How does anyone get there? This really is the question every one of you must answer. Because a service just like this one will be held for every person sitting here. Your body is going to be buried in a hole in the ground, just like Nancy, just like all people. Well, what's the answer to that question? Well, not only is Jesus the only authority on heaven, Jesus is the only gatekeeper of heaven. What does that mean? Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so if Jesus is all authority on everything, then Jesus is the one who decides who does not get into heaven, and he is the one who decides who does get into heaven. He decides who does not get in. In John chapter 7, the Pharisees, the religious Jews who believed that they could earn God's favor by their good works, they hated the message of Christ because it was a message of grace from God, not a message of earning God's favor with their supposed good works. And Jesus declared to them that soon he would be going away, meaning that he would be ascending back into heaven. And then he said, and where I am going, you cannot come. He authoritatively denied them entrance into heaven. John 5, verse 22 says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And we see this judgment consummated at the end of the age in Revelation chapter 20, that Jesus is shown as the judge on the great great white throne. All the unsaved dead of all the ages are raised up and brought together. And Jesus will judge them according to the countless sinful deeds that they've done. And the text says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And all of the dead of all of the ages who have ever rejected Christ, all will be judged by Christ. Why? Because he decides who does not get in. It's his call. But he also decides who does get into heaven. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus made a very daring claim. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way this is phrased specifically is very telling. Jesus isn't just a way. He says he's the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other. There is a singular way, a singular truth, a singular life. And when Jesus was comforting his disciples the night he would be arrested, he gave them assurance in John 14, verse 3, that he was going to prepare a place for them that where I am you may be also. 
his call, his decision. The criminal on the cross who asked Jesus for mercy, even as both of them were dying together, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, the gatekeeper of heaven, he said, truly, truly, today you will be with me in paradise. He made the call. It's his decision to make. Now, speaking of the cross, why was Jesus on the cross in the first place? Why was he going to die? Well, first we have to answer the question, why do we have to die? Why is that? It's actually really quite unnatural if you think about it. The Bible tells us why we have death. God created a perfect world and placed in this perfect world his ultimate creation, a man and a woman, and he desired that they live in harmony and in love with him. But instead, they chose to disregard God, to rebel against him, and they sinned, bringing upon themselves the curse of God and bringing upon mankind the curse of God, the curse of sin. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Of course, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Not just to die once physically, that's bad enough. But to be raised unto judgment and to experience what Revelation 20 calls the second death, the lake of fire. Now, someone might say, well, I'm worthy of God. I'm not worthy of death. That means that, in fact, you think you're a good person. So just how good do you have to be for Jesus to let you into heaven? How good do you have to be? Well, the answer is found in Matthew 5, 48. Jesus gave the standard. He said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, maybe you're a little bit pushy and you say, all right, but how perfect is perfect? Here's God's standard. James 2, 10, for whoever keeps the whole law of God but fails once has become guilty of all of it. If you've ever dishonored your parents even one time you're guilty of all if you've ever wished you could take something that doesn't belong to you you're guilty of all if you've ever spoken one unkind word you're guilty of all if you have ever rebelled against authority one time you're guilty of all if you've ever lied one time you're guilty of all that's the standard therefore whether you and i both rightly deserve the wages of sin which is death Now we can answer the question, why was Jesus on the cross in the first place? Romans 5.8 tells us that God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He substituted himself for all who would have faith in him so that we don't have to experience the wrath of God. And instead of you dying eternally for your sin, Christ died as your substitute to pay for the heinous and atrocious sins that you've been committing since the day you were born See, the rest of Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How do I get this gift? It's not difficult. Jesus made it very simple. He said, this was his whole message. He said in Matthew 4.17, Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To repent means to turn away from your love of your own sin to see your sin for what it is, a hideous rebellion against a holy God. It means to change your mind about your sin and to turn instead to Christ and to confess to him your need for him and to apply his death on the cross to your account. 
And because God's holy wrath against you has been satisfied, whenever God sees you, he sees the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory, in all of his perfection. That's what he sees when he sees you. And now as a believer in Christ, you have the privilege of being called, as the New Testament assures you, 91 times you were called one who is, quote, in Christ, in union with Christ, because Christ conquered death. How do we know? Because he died and he was resurrected and he's seated at the right hand of God. He's proven that he's conquered death and he's proven that he can do it on your behalf. Listen, when dear Nancy breathed her last breath on this earth, because she is, not was, is in Christ, she's with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven right now. She no longer has a voice on this earth, but I do claim the fact that she gave me permission to speak on her behalf. Now, I told you that the believer in Christ lives to the Lord and dies to the Lord. The death of a Christian is our last act of obedience and faithfulness. And I told you that Nancy has drawn a line in the sand by her death. She's thrown down a gauntlet. What is this line in the sand? Here it is. Every one of you are here today because you have some relationship and affection for Nancy. You're sorrowful about her passing. But by her death, and her wish that we speak of Jesus and of heaven. She's issued a challenge. She's drawn a line in the sand, and every one of you must be on one side of that line or the other. There are only two options. On one side of the line she is drawn, you love and you cherish Nancy. And yet, by virtue of not believing a word of what I've just said, you have only one logical option and conclusion, and that is to come to the conclusion that Nancy died a sad, deluded woman. That's the only logical choice. And that her life ultimately was characterized by one giant lie. There is no other option. The other side of the sand, of the line, the one that she's standing on, You are here because you love and you cherish Nancy. But more importantly, you love and cherish Nancy's Savior, Jesus Christ. Because if you ever want to see Nancy again, you must go through the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. That's the only way. There are only two sides. And I very confidently speak for Nancy, and more importantly, very confidently speak for Christ when I encourage you to be on the right side. Be on the right side. That was her request. Her heart's cry to her last breath was to see every person she loves in the heavenly kingdom someday. It's up to you. It's up to you. Our Father, we thank you for the life of Nancy Moore. I thank you for the wishes that she expressed at the end of her life that the gospel of Christ be proclaimed Her desire for heaven, her her delight at heaven was so clear and so poignant. And Lord, I I even remember joking with her in the last days about, it's, it's like she's about to go to Disneyland, and she smiled and said, it's better. How wonderful, how joyful, Lord, to see a believer. Her last act on this earth, she died well. She died well. She died as she lived unto Christ. 
We praise you and we thank you for her life. But we praise you and we thank you even more that we do not grieve as those who have no hope. That because of the cross of Christ, we have hope of seeing you and we have hope of seeing all who have gone before, including dear sweet Nancy. How quickly that time will pass when we are reunited and how joyful that reunion would be. I pray for this precious family, Lord, for Ben and for all of the rest of the family. That as they really begin this process of trying to comprehend what it means to lose contact with somebody they love so dearly, to continue on in this difficult life without her, I pray that your comfort would be ever abiding, that your spirit would be ever comforting and helpful, and that the hope of a future reunion would keep alive in their hearts the joy and the contentment and the peace that is only given by Christ. And it is in his name that we pray and thank you. Amen.